Let me read for us uh, Acts 2, verses 14 to 47. This is the Peter's sermon at Pentecost. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains, pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of your gladness, of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me pray for us as we consider this. Father, this is... uh, even being abridged, uh, this is a, a, a long sermon in front of us. Uh, it is easy for us to, to, to lose track where we are. Uh, and it is easy for us just in general for the cares of the world and the cares of the week to intrude on this time. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your spirit. And that you would keep us attentive and open our hearts that we might hear the words that you have for us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to be talking about something that, that you, may, you may either have talked a lot about on one hand or very little about on the other. And that's the Holy Spirit. I find that it seems in Christian circles that there's either a, a huge focus on the Spirit or there's almost a complete ignoring of him. And honestly, it may be unsettling for some of you. It's sometimes unsettling for me because the Holy Spirit's not uh, the, the easiest thing, I think, to understand because he's invisible. Uh, he's mysterious in a lot of ways. And, and we ask, how do we know if he's working in me? Right? This is a huge question. How do I know if the Holy Spirit is working in me? And in some ways, the answer isn't that hard because life follows the spirit life always leaves awake if you've ever been behind a boat you know the, the the trail of water as it parts behind the boat is awake that there's evidence that it's been there you know if a baby is alive if it cries right because life leaves awake you know your plants are alive if they bloom life comes with signs and likewise these believers in this story begin to show that the spirit has, has, has come to fruition in their lives because they start living, whereas before they hadn't lived. What is outlined here in these verses is that the true spirit-filled life, in the wake of the spirit, what did they do? And we suggest that they did, they did five things, and these won't all be equal length, don't worry. But they, they, they reasoned, they were humbled, they studied, they shared, and they worshiped. So let's look at this first point that they reasoned. Uh, You you may think this odd, talking about the Holy Spirit and reasoning, but it's actually completely consistent with who he is. It's interesting that that Peter doesn't start his sermon by saying, look, we just had this really intense experience. And if you know anything about Acts 2, you'll know that before this, the, the Holy Spirit came upon them like great rushing winds, and there were tongues of fire over their heads, right? This is a, this is quite... The experience, but Peter doesn't say, Men, listen to me. We've just had this amazing experience, and we need to tell you about that. And he could have. But no, he said his sermon was well reasoned, and it appealed to the Old Testament. It appealed to something that they knew, and more than that, he even appealed to witnesses. The point is that, that Peter is giving reasons, not opinions, not experiences. When he talks about the Holy Spirit, he's not telling folks to take a leap 
into the dark. He's not calling them to blind faith in something. You have to understand that talking about the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah was the last thing that anyone in this text was willing to believe. The last thing. No one would have believed, believed Peter, if he, Peter if he said, listen, we saw Jesus risen from the dead. Uh, two or three of us did, right? No one would believe that. But rather, he says, we all saw him. In fact, some of you may have even seen him. This is a matter of public record. The tomb is empty, and 500 witnesses saw him from the dead. You can go ask them. He appeals to actual evidence. The point is that the Holy Spirit gets you to think. It gets you to think. So we need to stop writing off sometimes this, this idea that, that, that faith and reason somehow don't ever come together, or that it's just for strangely religious people. But for, for the rest of us, we just sort of bebop along the day. It's not. It's for Christianity. It's for anyone who wants proof, who wants demonstration. The Bible has the gall to assume that for you to... The Bible has the gall for you to assume that you have to check your brain at the door in order to reject Christianity, not to believe it. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about a Scottish theology professor who used to open up his lectures this way. Gentlemen, I suggest to you that a gospel and a teaching that were good enough and great enough for the mind of a Paul and an Augustine and of an Aquinas and a Luther and a Calvin and a Knox and a Pascal, and a Wesley, and a Gladstone are at least worthy of your respectful consideration. So you can say what you will about Christianity, but you can't say a word about it until you've investigated these intellectual claims, and they are that. The Spirit makes you think. But second, second, they, they, they didn't just reason, they were humbled. Uh, verse 37, I think, is one of the most vivid results of the Spirit's movement among these people. Did you catch it? They were cut to the heart. That's what the text says. In other words, something grabbed them. Uh, I, I have a vivid memory as a child of the first time that I stole something. Maybe you, you have these memories. It was, a, it was a, a chocolate egg about this big, wrapped in foil you know, from a flea market or, or something. And, and of course, I put it in my pocket you know, and, and didn't think anything about um, chocolate melting, and it melted all over my pants. And uh, when my mom came to get me out of the car, she asked what that is, you know, what is that? I said, it's mud. It's not very believable, because it didn't smell or taste like mud. And I remember that moment, and of course, many since, but this is probably the least embarrassing for me, um, of, of, of getting caught and feeling like the, 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 the punch in the stomach, you know, if you've been caught in the middle of something, you get a punch in your stomach, and you get this hot, prickly feeling going over you. And I think that that's what's going on for them. When it says they were cut to the heart, I think that, it could have, that, that, that Peter, if he were less eloquent, would have said they felt as if they got punched in the stomach, and a hot, prickly sensation crept over their body. Um, and I think that, that, I think that's what happens with Christians, I do. I think that, that Christians are people who have felt this before with the Lord. And I wonder, in this text, what is it that, that made them feel this way? And I think Peter says it twice, first in verse 23, and second in verse 36. This Jesus 
you crucified and killed. You caught that, right? It's very pointed. It's very accusatory. And then in 37, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And this, I would submit to you, is what cut them to the heart. Why? Because there is a spiritual change that happens in someone who, who, right when they become a Christian, because before they had a sense of breaking God's rules, but now they've had a sense of breaking God's heart. And that's the difference. I knew I had broken the rules when I took that little foil egg. But, but, but it was when I knew I had to be confronted with what I did that I no longer was just offending some arbitrary rule. But I was offending my mother, the store, and the, the, I had to walk up to that, to that lady at the cash register and hand her back this you know, foil mess and a nickel or whatever it cost. But I knew I had offended somebody and their heart. And this is the key to spiritual power here. Many people, I think, are weighed down uh, by the guilt of their sins, but I don't know if they're cut to the heart. Uh, Because the Spirit's work is not about an intensity of feelings. It's not a difference that, that before you felt a little bad, but now you feel really bad. No, it's a difference in kind. That, that, that before, before, it's the fear that, oh, God might get me, or there might be some consequence. But for the Christian, that being cut to the heart, we fear him because we now adore him. There's a difference in kind. that The, the Spirit actually changes it because we realize, mm-hmm. oh, this is someone I'm in relationship with. This is someone who loves me, and I, and I love them. Um, it's like when I see all my friends uh, are having babies, and they all just have this sensation of wanting to go up to their parents and both uh, apologize to them and thank them at the same time. Some of you may have this exact same feeling of where, where you, you realize, oh, so that's what it is. That all those things that I said that, that, that I was actually offending you and the things that I did actually hurt you, and I get that now. And so, and, but it's a sense of I'm sorry and thank you for loving me. And I think that that's what goes on with the Christian. And, and we're, you're not a Christian until you see Jesus' work on the cross as more than just a generalized atonement. Let me explain what I mean by that. That you have to see that it is your specific sins that put him there. Uh, Tim Keller pointed this out several years ago, that, that you have Peter overtly denying Jesus in the Gospels. He, he says, three, he denies him three times. Uh, but only Luke records this little moment in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, where after cursing and denial that he even knew Jesus, the passage says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered. Right? You can picture that he's looking at Jesus' swollen, bruised face after his, after his beatings, and Peter remembers. At that moment, Peter's denial was no longer theoretical. His sins were no longer abstract. They were intensely personal. And the Christian gets that. What is the sin, the one sin, maybe many, that keeps you from God this morning? What is it that keeps you out of fellowship with him, whether you're a Christian or not? Give it a name. Because when you see Jesus being that sin on your behalf on the cross, that's where you find healing. If, if you just think, well, well, Jesus is just my fire insurance, so that when I die, I don't have to be in this painful place that I've heard people yell at me about, then then Jesus is never going to mean anything to you. But when you see Jesus as 
you know, the bad mother, or as the cheater, or as the gossip, or the thief. When you see him as you on the cross, there's real healing there because you realize that God punished him for you and you're cut to the heart and you want to apologize and thank the Lord for what he's done in your, in your life. So they were humbled. But third, they studied. They studied. It's interesting being in campus ministry because I think that uh, college students are very excitable, and that's a great thing. They have a lot of energy. And I remember this when I was in college, and I see it all the time, that, that this idea of we just had this amazing experience, this amazing event. How do we do the next big amazing experience, an amazing event? How do we go from, from, from this feeling, this high that we had, where we really felt connected with God, and do it again next month or next week? or next year. And you would think after this, because it says that there were thousands of people saved in this sermon, right? This is a pretty remarkable event. I'd put it up against many of Billy Graham's crusades easily, especially since he based them on the Bible. But that's beside the point. But, but what do they do? Do they start planning do they start saying, okay, okay, Peter, we need you to come up with another one because that was a really good sermon. Maybe we can use it in a couple cities over that they haven't heard about it yet, and we can get a few more thousand people. No, they don't do that. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They studied. That's the first thing that the, that the text says that they did. And I know that talking about doctrine and theology in our context, our present American context, can be a touchy subject. Because the American flavor of evangelicalism has found doctrine either divisive or arrogant. That it, 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 either, it either divides people that they can't get along because they share different doctrines, or it's arrogant that you could think your doctrine is the correct doctrine. But, but a Methodist, see we're not divisive, named Will Willimon I think is right. He says, the church is not to drift from one emotional outburst to the next to resuscitate Pentecost on a weekly basis. Rather, the church moves immediately to the task of teaching, keeping itself straight about what it is and what it is to be about. He says that if you don't have theology, you won't understand your Christian experience. C.S. Lewis uses an analogy of, of theology where he compares it to a map. And he says, and he actually says two very profound things at the same time. He says, look, you would never, if someone took out a map and points to a place, say they point to New York, and they say, look, now I've been to New York, you'd think they were crazy. His point is that you can't know God strictly through theology, right? You can't point to a map and say you've been to a place. But he also says that if you, if you don't ever have a map, then you're going to lose where you're going very quickly. In other words, if you go from one experience to the next without a broader picture, then you're going, to lose your, you're going to lose your place, you're going to lose your way. And I think that, that we, we, we easily fall into either extreme, of, of either going purely experiential or purely doctrinal. And in both cases, we miss something. But notice what they, notice that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They had the experience, they knew God, and they immediately set about to understand what that meant. 
And they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Who are the apostles but the foundation of the church and the foundation of this? And in Ephesians, it talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And how much do we, how much time do we give to understanding the Christian faith, to really picking this apart? There's still pages and volumes and and libraries of ink spilled on the Bible even today, 2,000 years or so after, after the canon was completed. There's still so much to learn. And how much time do we spend giving to that learning? So they studied. Fourth, they shared. They shared. Uh, verse 45 makes us a bit nervous, doesn't it? Uh, let me read verse 45 again. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any has or as any had need. Um, I think it needs to be said that this is not some tacit approval of communism or socialism or any other ism. Jesus very much affirms the eighth commandment, do not steal. If everyone has, owns everything together, you can't steal. He's affirming personal property even in that commandment. No, but what it's saying is that there's a deep oneness of these people as they experience togetherness. They're together all the time. It says that they're together in the home and in the temple uh, where they broke bread. And because they served one another and because they helped those in need, they knew true fellowship. Uh, a man named Kent Hughes says this, fellowship it's not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. I love this. It's not punching cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in the church hall. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship cost. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. The truth is we will have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. I don't know if any of you were camp counselors, but I was a camp counselor for about 10 years. And the, the bond that you make with your other counselors is really incredible. And it's not just because you're in the same place, it's because you're, you're changing the sheets from last night's accident, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're cleaning up throw up, you're dealing with whining, and the is it time for, for rest hour to be over yet? when all you want to do is take an, an hour-long nap. You're, you're, you're constantly you're tying knots if you're in climbing, you're jumping in after kids if you're in swimming. It's just constant cost. There's no other way to put it. And, and you, you pay those costs together as counselors. And as a result, you get close, really close. Uh, and, and, and I think that, the, that there's something to that about fellowship, excuse me, fellowship. I think that friendship bonds are not the result of just mere commonality among Christians. Um, love and care is produced because you've paid for the right to love and care for each other. Um, I mean, look, we live in, in a generation that can only be considered opulent by the rest of history. Uh, I mean, really. And we claim that we have the goods on what Christianity is all about. We, we claim we're evangelicals. We, we, we say this, we know this to be true. We can tell you the truth. But it's interesting that oftentimes I'll see the theological liberals, those who might deny 
denied the Bible sword of God. They might even deny the resurrection of Christ. And they do a much better job than I think I do and, and many other conservative churches for caring for the poor. Um, and why is it that they are on the front lines of service within our communities? Maybe it's not the case here. Uh, I mean, I hope it isn't. But, but there are trends, and I think that that has been one for a little while. There's a, a missionary that came to our presbytery several years ago um, that he confessed that his generation was wrong in not serving the poor. I mean, he was a much older man in his 70s. Um, I wonder if we'll make the same apologies uh, when we're his age. Uh, and look, y'all, you might say, well, I don't really know anyone that can't pay their bills in our church. Maybe, maybe, maybe you do. I don't know all of you. I don't know the needs of the body. Um, but look, you're in communities where there's poverty, where there's struggling, and, and those people, it's a chance for you to have fellowship with them, which will, of course, uh, really bleed well into our next point. It's a chance for, you, for them to know that you love them and care for them and for them to be parts of, part of your body as well. There's churches around here. We believe that, that it's not, we're members of one global universal church as well, not just only of, of this. There's churches around here that have needs. Um, I really encourage you. I don't know the organizations here. I don't live uh, in the greater Little Rock area. I think that's appropriate to say. I don't know that. But, but, but to, to seek those out as individuals, but also as a church. Because fellowship with, with each other and with other, other Christians, it costs something. At last they worshiped. They broke bread. Verse 37 tells us what these people did when they were together. It says, praising God and having favor with all. You know, there was a Far Side comic. I don't know if you remember the Far Side a uh, great little comic strip. And, and, and there's, um, there's a, a man who just gets to heaven. He's got, you know, wings and probably a halo. And there's uh, several clouds. And there's, there's other men and women with white robes and halos sitting on those clouds uh, with harps. And, and there's this little thought bubble, you know, that kind of comes up over his head that says, ah, I really wish I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> and, and there's this idea that... that I think worship doesn't necessarily get us excited anymore. That, that the idea of praise is one that doesn't get us excited. But, but I want you to begin to, to redefine what you, what, you, what you think of when you hear the word praise. And I think that most of us are, are, are put off uh, sometimes by the spiritual posturing that always says praise the Lord as, a, as an end to everything. Is that... I don't think that that's necessarily what praise is. Of course, that's often said in earnest, and that's wonderful. But, but look, when you, I've read C.S. Lewis's book, his contemplation on the Psalms, and he says, this is a fascinating idea, that in order to really enjoy something, we have to tell someone about it. And you all know this intuitively. Uh, in fact, it's, it's the very basis of social media, in my opinion. When I look on on, on, on my Facebook page, it's, it's about 15,000 pictures of babies on my, my, my newsfeed. Some of you know this too. Um, it's just nonstop babies. And when you ask why, right, you ask why there's so many babies, why can't I see, you know, funny dog videos anymore? Um, 
is because people love their children and they want, they want to share the funny thing that their child did that day. Because as you share something, you grow to love it more. Right? And, and what happens when you go see a good movie? You tell people, you say, you've got to come see this movie, it's wonderful. Or when you hear you know, the, the latest Taylor Swift song and you go, wow, she's so talented. I've got to tell people about style. I just heard it, it's amazing. But that's, that's what we do is that we, we, we share the things that we love and we don't share them, uh, we don't share them just because you know, we, we want people to think that we're cool. No, we share them because we, we actually gain more enjoyment of those things when we see other people enjoy them too. And, and I think that, that when we look at, at Christians, we, we don't have fellowship just because we have an affinity. We're, we're not like uh, Democrats or Republicans who get together uh, you know, because they, they have a common interest and mostly because they don't want to be contradicted by the others. No, we get together because we found something that's worth being excited about. We get together because we found a common love that, that, that we, we, we keep sharing it back and forth with, with each other and we watch our own enjoyments grow infinitely. And notice, notice that the addition of the numbers uh, Luke records here seems to be a result of the praising. That as they praised, it says that their numbers grew day by day. They were converted by praise. And I want to offer up to you that, that uh, this is an alternate evangelism technique. Let me explain. I think that many of us think of evangelism as knocking on doors or holding up you know, signs at, at Mardi Gras or, or something like that, attempting uh, to get people to engage with, the, with us so that we can explain the gospel. And, I mean, those... You know, the Lord certainly uses those things. Um, but, but I think that, that I, I wonder, though, if, if a more effective technique, and, and I say effective not that we just do things based on what works, but, but, but because it's, it's what the Bible seems to describe, an effective technique is, is to tell people about what you're excited about, to share with them that, to actually share in their lives and, and, and let them see what the Lord is doing. And I know that sounds very abstract, but, but these people, it says they broke bread together, which means they took, took the Lord's Supper, and I think frequently. People were bound to ask them, why do you do that? Why is it that you get together and, and you seem to enjoy it? Why do you do that? And I think that people were converted by seeing other people take the Lord's Supper in, in, in this text. I think that, that, that people were converted because they saw people really praising. They had to go, why? And it gave them opportunities to talk about it. What would it be like to, to, to actually share the things that you love? Not to, not to try to convince the person who, who clearly doesn't want to be convinced, although that has its place. I, some of you may know that I was in an, an apologetic type situation my first year uh, where uh, I more or less debated atheists, more or less, Maybe less debated, but it was it was a great it was a great experience. We and made a lot of friends, honestly, friends that way, and uh, with with some of these. Those have its context, but I think that for, I think unless you just are geared that way, that sounds awful to you, doesn't it? But but it's different when you think, well, what if the way that I talk to my friends about 
Taylor Swift or you know, whatever the, the latest favorite movie is, what if I could talk to them that way about, about Jesus? What if I could talk about the things that get me excited? The fact that, that now God doesn't look at me the same way. That, that God actually looks at me in Christ. That he doesn't see me as the bad mom or the gossip or the thief or whatever, whatever it might be, the, the sins that we talked about earlier. But now he sees me as one who's fulfilled all the requirements of the law because Jesus has. What if, what if you got to say, do you know how amazing it is walking through my day without shame hanging over my head? Because I know that Jesus loves me, and he's for me, and he's interceding for me. What if you got to say, hey, when I go to church, it's great. And yeah, you know, sometimes the person singing next to me is off key, but I don't care because we're getting to sing praises to this God who actually cares about me. Doesn't that sound a little bit, just a little bit better than holding up signs at Mardi Gras or, or knocking on people's door? Because we have that opportunity. We really do. The, 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 the gospel is something that is intrinsically exciting. I hope that you're excited about it. And if you're not, I wonder, I wonder if you couldn't do as these people did. To, 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 to reason, to be humbled as, as, you, as you see the, your sin even displayed uh, and, see, and see Jesus' forgiveness, to, to, that you would study and know more about it, that you would fellowship, that you'd share. Uh, and I think that that would leave you, leave you praising. It would leave you worshiping. It's an invitation. Let me pray for us. Father, even as we look over this and, and, and we see these men cut to the heart, and maybe some of us are even cut to the heart now, that we feel that the gut shot and the, the, the prickly hot feeling, uh, Lord, would you, would you be kind with us? Would, would you show us, would you immediately take us to Jesus? Would you remind us of his grace that he has for us? Would you, would you, would you show us in a, in a great way your love for us? Uh, because of what he's done and not because of what, what we have done. And would you have us share that with people? Would you have us love people and care for people uh, inspired by you? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.